I love when God does prophetically what he wants to do in the word. And some things have been confirmed today that lines up. <clears throat> I love what Kate said that it's sometimes we, when we're in the middle of a battle or middle of a circumstance, we've got to look back to a place in our life where we got victory, but we can't live there. That's to only give us faith to step into the future to embrace the next obstacle with the same grace that it took to get through the last obstacle. That we have to be moving ahead in our life with God, whether we know where we're going or not. And I think sometimes we want the prophetic insight to know exactly the place where God's taking us. And we feel like because God hasn't told us where we're going that we don't need to take steps in order to get there. If you were to ask Abraham a week after God told him and Sarah to pack their stuff up and to leave the place of familiarity and go to a place that God was calling them to, they would have said, if you would have asked them, where are you going? They would have had to say, we don't know. But they could have said with boldness, but we can't stay here. And I think there's times in our life where God is urging us to take steps to go further with him without him telling us where we're going. And the only certainty that we have is that we can't stay in the same place that we are at right now. And this is the place God is calling us. He's calling the church. He's calling us to prepare ourselves to go to a place without every detail not being lined out and all those things. But we have to get to a place where we're so unsatisfied with where we're at in God that we're willing to take a step into the unknown to leave the familiar. Because as we step from the familiar... The familiar is what's comfortable, right? The familiar is the place I know. The, the familiar is the place I can navigate. The, play, the familiar is the place, honestly, where I don't need God to believe for my next step and my next provision. That the familiar is the place that I'm dwelling in that I know all too well, that I can praise God in that place, but I really don't have the opportunity to give him a sacrifice of praise in that place because I could do it with him or I could do it without him. So God will sometimes pull us on a faith journey to where we've got to leave the familiar and begin to step into some kind of creative new thing with him and that can only be worked out as we are on the journey with God, moving step by step as he tells us to move. And it's in that place that where our faith begins to be developed. Remember, me and Elm were at a church for 10 years. We knew how to navigate that place. God started speaking to us that it was time to step down. And right now they're enjoying their 106-year anniversary today. Yeah, that church is. Yeah. 
So this is an established church. But God began to speak to us. And so I did the same thing that we always do. Okay, God, I'll go. Where are we going? <laughs> Let's pack our bags. Where are we going, God? And the Lord wouldn't tell me. He just said, I just need you to move out. You know how hard it is to explain yourself when God puts you in those kind of positions? So I'm sitting down with a pastor whom I love and mentored me and, and, and taught me a lot of cool things. And as I'm sitting down there with him, I said, hey, you know, God's put it on my wife and I sat down with him. Hey, God's put it on her heart. We're going to step down. Oh, okay. Awesome. So is there a promotion? No. Where are you going? I don't know. So immediately everybody's mind goes to something's wrong. There's got to be a scandal, right? You know it's bad in the church when somebody walks by faith and it's got to be a scandal because nobody would walk by faith. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Let's just be real. <laughs> it's like we talk a good game, but our lifestyle is not a very good match. <laughs> So we stepped down, and for nine months, we went on a journey and didn't know where we were going. We just knew we couldn't stay there. So we started this blessing jar because we knew God had called us to this. And on this journey, God was giving us the opportunity to see what it's like to believe for him, to believe uh, for everything from him. Because if he didn't show up, it wasn't going to happen. So for nine months, we started this jar, and we just said, all right, God, we've stepped out. We've done our part. What can we do? Okay, it's up, okay. It's up to you now. And that jar, that blessing jar during that nine-month journey of not knowing where we were going got so full it couldn't hold all the blessings that God had put in that jar. And it contained checks, it contained notes people gave us, it contained crazy times where God intervened and like miraculous. I should get it out and, and read them to you one Sunday and just... And just show you. And just, it was just like God just, just overwhelmingly filled our life with the abundant life of his blessing because we followed him. And all the while, we were so caught up in where we were going, we didn't realize that during that journey, my heart was being stretched and things in my life were beginning to change. And I was beginning to get deeper into God. I was being able to, to see his heart and to experience him in a new way that I had never experienced him before, that I was so busy trying to figure out where I was going that I didn't realize what God was wanting to do in my heart was preparing me to when the place did come open, Lakeview Assembly, and we were supposed to be at and we knew it, God on the journey had developed my heart to prepare me for when we arrived, we would be the people that we needed to be for this place. And that's not to say that we're not still growing or anything like that. But the idea is, is that on the journey is where we grow to become the thing 
in relationship with God and not get so caught up in where we're going. God will map all that out, but God isn't trying to just get us to places. He's trying to make us a people that look like Him so that when we show up to the place, we represent Jesus properly and with the right character. So God would call us in times where we don't know the destination, in times of great uncertainty, to say, I need you to trust me and let me develop you and let me speak into your heart and let me heal some things and let me touch some things. And if you'll be faithful in that relational journey, you'll be right where you need to be. Because the steps of God or the steps of a righteous man, rather, are ordered of the Lord. And so we have to trust when sometimes we don't know where we're going. We've got to trust God for just the next step sometimes. I love that scripture that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know what? When I'm in a dark place and I have a lamp, I can only see the next step. I can't always see so far down the road that I know exactly where my life is headed. But what God is doing is He's drawing me into the mystery of the relationship of who He is where I don't have to be so caught up in where I'm going and getting all the information and all the facts and all the details. I can get lost in the relationship with Him and then I can wake up and be like, oh, we're there already. Have you ever been so worried about where you're going, especially as a kid? You remember this? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Does that make it go quicker or longer? Right? But have you ever got wrapped up in something on the journey? Or fell asleep on the journey? <laughs> and you wake up and you're like, whoa, I'm in a different state. <laughs> Right? And it seems like no time had passed. If we will focus on our relationship with God and quit worrying about how to get out of trouble, how to get out of this, how to get out of that, how to do this, how to do that. We've got a program and a course for every single thing to how to get out of a jam, but we don't have a program, of course, of what it is to just press into God and begin an individual relationship with Him in the secret place. And if we would press into the secret place in relationship with him, all the other things would get worked out in our life. And that's what God's calling us to. He's calling us to relationship with him. All right, here's the big surprise. You ready? You know what God wants? God wants your heart. God wants you. He don't need what you can offer him. He's talented all by himself. He's powerful all by himself. He can rule the universe all by himself. But he has this thing where he just kind of loves you. And he wants to spend time with you with no agendas. And as we press into his heart and we begin to get his pulse and we begin to get his heartbeat, suddenly we find our mission in relationship. The Bible says that your life is hidden 
in Christ with God. So where are you going to find your life? In Christ, with God. And that when I enter into relationship, I don't step out of purpose. Have you ever thought, man, I got too much to do, I can't pray. I got too much going on, I can't spend time with God. See, what you've done there is, is you've just divorced yourself from intimacy, which has divorced yourself from purpose. That when we press into God, we press into our mission and our purpose. So this is what God's called us to as the people of God. To be a force on the earth that is so peculiar, that is so weird, that is so strange... That it would look so counter to the norm that people would look and say, what is that? (laughs) What is that? Paul says it it like this, that in the earth we are the fragrance of Christ. That we are the aroma of Jesus. To some, to life. To some, it's a smell of death. But regardless, we are the smell of Jesus in the earth. The only way I can smell like something is if I've had proximity with that thing. The only way I'm giving off that aroma is if my personal relationship with Jesus is right. And as my wife said earlier, that's got to be our foremost passion and pursuit is Jesus. It's like he has to be the center of it all. That it's got to be about seeking and savoring Jesus to such a place that when people look, they understand our pursuit and who the one in whom we're pursuing is. That in these times that we're living in, the church has the opportunity to step into her genius. And step into the role in which God created her to be in. And I think what happens is, is when we see tumultuous times, sometimes the It's the fight or flight, right? Is we either run away from the thing or we try to fight the thing. And this is the picture of Peter. Is that Peter grabs a sword and cuts off 
Malchus's ear when Jesus is trying to get arrested. And Jesus undoes what Peter did. <laughs> Remember, Peter is like this picture of the church, right? He's like the picture of us. Like sometimes he hits home runs, right? Where he's like, who do people say that I am? Well, some John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some this and some that. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, ooh, he shocked Jesus. Surprised Jesus. Whoa. Only God could reveal that to you. That here's Peter walking in the revelation of God. But you don't have to read a little bit further down on that chapter in Matthew 16. Jesus is saying, okay, now that y'all know who I am, y'all can know my mission. That's the problem with the disciples is they're always wanting mission before they have relationship. Jesus, can I sit on the, the, the either side of you in glory? <laughs> said, that's not my place to give. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can drink my cup of suffering and you can carry my cross. <laughs> Get behind me, Jesus. <sighs> what Jesus is trying to pull them into is relationship, and they're so busy trying to figure out their mission so they can pat themselves on the back say, Look what we did. And we're the same way. get asked all the time how many y'all running <laughs> I never get asked how many passionate disciples of Jesus do you have in your church People are about mission. They're not about relationship. Peter says, you're the Christ. Oh, man, blessed are you. And then he, Jesus starts saying, okay, now that you know who I am, I can tell you my mission. I'm going to be placed in the hands of sinful men. And they're going to murder me. But fear not, on the third day I'm going to rise again and overcome it all. Read this for yourself, Matthew 16. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Hey, Jesus, you know, you need to quit all this crucifixion talk. You've really dropped the morale of the other guys. And as you're, you know, number one guy, <laughs> it's my duty to tell you how you're affecting the morale of the other people around you. And Jesus said, whom he just told, you're the rock in whom I'm going to build my church, says, get behind me, Satan. That the only time Jesus rebukes Satan in the Bible is when he manifests in the church. That a people would be close enough for mission, but not close enough to have relationship. 
And I know what's attractive about our church. You know, we got people out there feeding homeless. We got people giving away groceries. We got people going to the, like, I get it. Like, we're a church of mission. Like, we're not rejecting the least of these. Like, we're in the middle of this thing. We're trying to do what we can do to be loved, but to show that we're the love of God in the, in the earth. But at the end of the day, we can't be so mission-focused that people don't see relationships. And I think I've been guilty sometimes of being so mission-focused that people are commodities to get the mission that's in my heart, not people to connect with in relationship and to love and to help get them to the place they need to be with Jesus. And so the spirit of the age, we have to just kind of shake it off of us and redefine success the way that Jesus did. That if my ministry's good, but my marriage is bad, I'm failing. P.J. O'Rourke has a quote. I love this quote. It's, everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Hey, and I do the dishes at my house, so I will. Pride. I just puffed up. Hold on. Jesus. Jesus. Okay. I'm humble again. I'm humble to do those dishes. <clears throat> That we think, in our minds, if we have a majority, we're winning. When the reality is, are we on God's side or not? There's a man by the name of... Alan Toynesby, I believe is his name, and he wrote a 12-volume set on uh, a history set where he studied 19 different civilizations. And the 19 different civilizations that he studied, he charted how they got started, what prompted them to find some success, and then their cycle downward. And it's something that historians have debated for many years. Can a civilization that started well and then reaches this place of crisis, can they navigate the troubled waters or is it inevitable that every civilization has to come crashing down? And what Toynesby had begun to discover is, is what helped a civilization navigate the time of crisis and enable them to go further was not a majority of people. It was something that he coined the term for called a creative minority. And when this small group of people 
called a creative minority, began to press forward and begin to embrace the days that they were living in and become solutionaries, not just problem namers, but when they begin to step into the role of getting creative to come up with solutions, the civilization would turn and actually go upward. That it never was about a bunch of people, but it was about a certain few. In the Bible, we would call that the remnant. The remnant. The small group of people that are all in with Jesus, that are facing the days with boldness, with courage, with perseverance, and are facing those days with creative solutions to how to navigate and capture the heart and imagination of a generation. And I believe the church is the creative minority. And sometimes it feels that you're all by yourself. When you're on your job, you look around. Does anybody else feel this way? The different settings that you're in, you feel like the only one. And have you ever complained to God that you're the only one? God, I'm the only one giving an effort for you. God, I'm the only one working hard for you. And it's an okay company to be in because Elijah was in the same thing. I just said, God, God, I'm the only one. And I love how God is when we get that attitude. Because he shows up and tells Elijah, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed a knee to Baal. You know what he's telling them? If you jump ship Elijah... I've got 7,000 other ones I can work through to get my will done on the earth. So do you want to be with me? Or do you want to go on your little cry session over here? And I think Elijah's heart changed. He's like, oof, I want to be in on what you got going, God. Hey, I'm... Do you want me to use you? Or do you want me to find somebody else? I'll find somebody else. That's cool. It's like Jesus called his bluff. Okay, it's too hard. You don't have to do this. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on here. Hold on here. I didn't say all that now. I just said it's getting hard, you know. Oh, okay. Well, we got work to do. And you see it all through the scriptures. Samuel's mourning because Saul has messed everything up. He's mourning. God, look. Saul, look what he did. And God says, would you get up and fill your horn with oil? I've got a teenager in a field out here that can outdo that guy. See, when we look at it like that, it's now a privilege to be partnering with God on the earth. It's not a duty. It's not something like, 
Like, dude, if you're sad about working for God, like, don't work for God because you're giving off a really bad vibe. Like, we get to do this. <laughs> we get to represent the Lord in the earth. We get to do this. We get to do this. This is a privilege to reflect God's nature into the earth. Wow. It's pretty awesome. So as we're walking this thing out, it's going to be really tempting to do like the children of Israel. Because when they left Egypt, which was the greatest civilization that had ever been, and that bondage was all they knew. So they didn't really know they were in bondage. See, we can think things are good just because we're used to them and not know the better thing that God has for us. And sometimes the better thing God has for us is actually harder than the thing that we're leaving behind. And in these days to come, it's going to be tempting as you're stepping out to follow the Lord. It's going to be tempting to look back like they did and say, you know, that was a pretty good system back there. You know, that was, <laughs> you know, back there, I had onions. <laughs> I had leeks, whatever that is. I had that. Right? And they're saying that from the desert. Where they're having to depend upon rocks busting open and making water. See, God called them, unlocked them out of a system that was comfortable. And take them on this journey to where he's only showing them a cloud and a fire. And whenever that goes, you got to go. But you got to stay there if it stays there. Jack Hayford, who, who founded King's College in California, part of the Foursquare movement, but he started with like 14 people and ended up with like this church of just thousands upon thousands, a Bible college, all this stuff. And they said, how did you get from 14 to there? He said, well, I could tell you because retrospect always gives me the advantage to tell you what happened each step of the way. He said, but... Real time, when we were in the middle of it, we just were following the cloud of glory. Each time God take, took, said, take a step, we took a step. So he said, I'm not going to tell you how that happened because you're going to try to formulate it and figure it out and God won't get the glory. That it was actually a people that were following God that took a step, as he said, take a step, who didn't know where they were going. That would we be content to be in the desert if it meant the presence of God? Come on. Come 
And if we're going to be a people that are going to be pioneers and innovators and be that creative minority, you're going to have to have a very small rearview mirror. I love what it says about Jesus. It says that he set his face like a flint. And everybody would try to get him off the cross. You notice that? Devil tempts him in the wilderness. He just stepped into his calling. Can't the guy get a little celebratory party of here he, here's the guy? He goes immediately, the spirit leads him into the wilderness, and the devil's trying to get him off his cross. Peter, quit telling people they're going to crucify you. Quit doing that. He's even on the cross, and they say, if you're really God, come off that cross. And what they didn't realize is that's what made God God, was that he'd rather stay pinned to a cross if it meant relationship with us than experience ease and no pain and then just Demonstrate his power. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And people always were misinterpreting his mission. And when you begin to step out and follow the Lord, people are going to misinterpret your mission. And it will always be an attempt to get you to turn around and talk about Egypt. When God's unlocked you out of that system to put you on a road for his glory. There's something about the Lord is that his least concern is your comfort. Say, Matt, but the Lord is our comforter. Yeah, but, but when we hear comforter, we think about that fluffy big blanket on our bed. <laughs> to comfort means to turn into a fortress. Yeah. That the gates of hell... Doesn't sound like people in a bed to me. Sounds like God's more interested in us becoming a fortress. And that's not to say he doesn't comfort us and he's not tender along the way. He, he is those things. But it's at the end to make me better, not to make me weaker. It's at its end to make me stronger and get me healthy, not to keep me in the pit. Man, I better get in some scripture. Y'all going to kick me out of here. Let's just do it. 
Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul's writing this from prison. I would have to tell you that because you probably couldn't get that from reading this from his tone and his, the praise in his voice. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Look at your neighbor, would you, with me? And say, beware of the dogs. Who let the dogs out? Come on now. I had to. I had to. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. See, Paul had some opponents where Paul would come in and he would start a church and he would set up a great foundation. And then there was these other people that were coming around called Judaizers and they would come in and they would say, oh, that's great you found Jesus, but now that you found Jesus... Yeah, you got to do this other stuff too. And they would try to add to Jesus things that they could do in their own power in the flesh and would undo the grace of God and what he was trying to do in the relationship of the thing. So Paul uses the term dogs. This was a scathing word in those days. A dog was also another name for the male cult prostitutes that were in the pagan temples of that time. That Paul uses this scathing language, and it's, and it's throughout the scriptures, is where we see uh, Lazarus, it says that the dogs licked his sores, right? Uh, when it says in the Bible, like a dog returns to his vomit. A man returns. So, so a dog was not something that we consider like now. Like dogs now are like best friends, right? It's like man's best friend. In that culture to a Jew, this was an unclean, very dirty animal that had no shame about itself. And so Paul is specific to use this word that would have rang throughout the ears. It would have been so scathing. It would be like Paul is saying something like just crazy right there, okay? Like like. I don't know if I can find an equivalent, but it was just crazy. If I did, y'all would fire me if I found the equivalent <laughs> of what he said. But, but he's saying, beware of these people that would try to add stuff to Jesus. Beware of these dogs. That their whole concern... I want to be careful here, was circumcision. So they come into a work that Paul founded upon grace and then try to add in circumcision. As if mutilating your flesh 
makes you in covenant with God. See, what this was was a looking back of the covenant with Abraham. And so what Jesus had made right in, in his obedience as the perfect Israel, was an attempt to turn them around from forward-facing Jesus face-to-face and getting them to look backwards to begin to start the journey back into the thing God had freed them from. Paul says, anything, a dog returns to his vomit, anything that would turn you around on your journey with Jesus is a dog. It's a dog. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Exalt in Jesus Christ and do not rely on human credentials. Come on now. Though mine too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church according to the righteousness stipulated in the law. I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying? Anything that I'm leaning on or bragging in or putting my faith in other than Jesus has suddenly become a liability to me going forward in God. I better hurry up. Buffets are getting cranked up out there. He considers these liabilities. Verse 8, more than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things indeed. I regard them as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is, in fact, based on Christ's relationship. My aim is to know Him. To experience the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings and to be like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now check this out, verse 12. Not that I have already attained this, that is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. (laughs) That if Jesus grabbed you, your only response should be to grab him back. 
You ever hug somebody that wouldn't hug you back? It's like so unnatural. Can I use you for an illustration? (laughs) Don't hug me back. Okay. This is actually what happened when we first met. (laughs) I'm being serious. I was in a really low place. And so we met for the first time, went to my friend Micah's house, and then we rode together. Oh, he's here? Well, he didn't see this part. So he set us up, and then we, um, we hung out, and then I took her back to her car. And it's that awkward moment where you're like, is it too soon to like, like how much is too much, right? And I was in a really just kind of low, weird place. And so I just like hugged her like this and just kind of like fell on her like this. And she, no, you didn't even do that. Don't even, don't be fronting. Don't be fronting. Don't front. We know what happened. But I'd take what I could get so she didn't push me off. It just makes the story better. Just go with it, okay? (laughs) So we hugged. So it was like that. But do you know what? Over time, I apprehended her, and it wasn't long. Come on now. Come on now. Give me some. There we go. It wasn't long that what apprehended her apprehended. It's like Jesus is so content. There's no pride in his heart that if he's not getting the hug back, he's still there. And he apprehends us in such a way that he's waiting for our arms to just reciprocate. So Paul says, what has laid a hold of me, I've now had the courage to lay a hold of him. And he's not letting go and I'm not letting go. And I'm not letting go because he ain't letting go. Yeah. It was a strange deal, but made the point, I guess. That I lay hold for that which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. I love this, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Instead, I am single-minded. Do you see how he's not trying to get there? He's like, I'm not there. Oh, but I'm single-minded. And if this was a race, I'm going to run it like there's only one winner, even though I know a lot of people's going to win this thing. I'm so enamored with a single mindset of focusing on and seeking Jesus and having relationship with him because the genius of everything else flows from that place. That's why Jesus said, in the secret place, if you keep that place right, he'll reward you publicly. That's what circumcision was all about. The most private place of your life, God has access to. And if he's got access to the most private place, 
He'll reward you and can trust you with more. So Jesus says, I'm going past normal circumcision. I'm going to the circumcision of the heart. There's a deeper place that Paul is wanting to go. And anything that gets him off that deeper place is a dog. It's a dog. I am single-minded for getting the things that are behind me and reaching out for the things that are ahead. I think Paul would say the best is yet to come. Because every accomplishment, he's like, that's a liability back there. If I keep looking back at that, I'm going to be content with where I'm at. Like, that's just a promise for me to keep stepping forward and going further in him. Forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect embrace this point of view. Paul is using, he's being snarky here. He's saying, these are saying, oh, well, you found Christ, you're not perfect. you got to do da 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 And he's like, um, no, the perfect ones are the ones that are pressing into Jesus in relationship. Yeah, those are the perfect ones. Those of are, perp- are perfect embrace this point of view. If you need something else other than Christ, how will he ever be your treasure? How will he ever be the centerpiece of your life if something else adds to him? It's a head scratcher. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. You say, well, Matt, there is some tough times ahead. Yeah, I would agree. Some really tough times. And what I love about the Bible is it never like puts it in a way, it never puts it in a package that's untrue. But it does put it in a package to where it's supernatural and it calls us to be obedient in the midst of bad situations. So it does call us to supernatural obedience as well, right? Okay, so I'm going to read these few verses and then we're going to call it quits, I promise. Luke, Luke 21, starting in verse 10. Then he said to them, this is the last days, Nation will rise up in arms against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. They will be, there will, this will be a time for you as to serve as witnesses. Therefore, be resolved not to rehearse ahead of time how to make your defense. For I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict. But God says, don't even worry about the case that you need to state. I'm going to give you all that right there in the moment. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will have some of you put to death. 
You will be hated by everyone because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that this is the desolation that has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter. Because these days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth. Nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging of waves. People will be fainting from fear. Uh, encouraging note, we're going to be let, let out of here on. And, and from the expectation of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and glory. But when these things begin to happen, we just said a mouthful right before that. When these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Would you stand to your feet? Would you stand to your feet in the middle of your crisis, in the middle of your trial? Would you step into the genius that is the church and that begins to worship no matter what's going on? Would you lift your hands and let out a cry? Maybe the whole world, your whole world's crumbling. Maybe everything's going down. Maybe everything's going bad. Maybe nothing is working out in your life. But I dare you to step into the genius that is in you, in God, and begin to worship and lift your heads and to see past the circumstances to see past the war, to see past the trials, to see past that, and to see the Son of God coming in the clouds and ruling and reigning on the earth. Would you do that in this place? Lord, we worship you, God. We worship you, God. God, we know there'll be trials. We know there'll be tribulations, but we serve a God who's above it all. We serve a soon-coming King, God, that can turn everything meant for evil to the good. We serve a God that is for us and not against us. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God, we just decree right now, God, that everybody in this place would know that there's treasure on the inside of them. That, God, they have a unique purpose put there by you. God, it'll never be revealed unless they press into relationship. So, God, let them find that you're good. Let them find that you're a father who loves and is accepting, who will never turn them away. God, you didn't promise it to be smooth sailing, but, God, you did promise you would be with us. You did promise you would give us the anointing and the, and the wisdom, God, to face whatever it would be, Lord, that we would have to face. 
so God, I'm asking each and every person here, God, God, that you'd pour out a special blessing on them, that they would know your face is shining upon them, that they would know they have your attention and your gaze. And God, as they gaze upon you, God, you would gaze into them. You just show them that they can trust you. They can trust you, God, with their heart. They can trust you. God, make us into the last day warriors, God, that we're going to have to be. Make us into those, God, the creative minority that are foolish enough to believe we have a great and mighty God who is in us and who is with us. And we thank you for it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Let's just take a moment just to worship just in your own way and just begin to talk with God. You to come and show your glory.